Warning, everything sucks all the time and we're getting pretty tired of it. Like I want to try to figure out like why everything is so bad all the time. Why is it this bad? Is it the people? Like is every person individually just bad? Is this a fallen existence we found ourselves in? Or is there something we're doing in society structurally that could maybe change to make things better? That's kind of the options I see. Maybe it's something completely other than that, but I think the only way to really find out is to investigate it. Yeah, let's put on our wrong boys detective agency hats. Let's try to figure out, you know, what causes these institutional failings? Is it individuals? Is it the qualitative features of these organizations? What are the structures that are generating this outcome that everywhere we look around in politics, everything sucks all the time? Nothing good can happen without a big asterisk. Why is it that way? Why does every good idea get watered down immensely into something that's like technically still good, but barely? This episode on Seriously Wrong, we're going to be talking about business confidence and the capital strike with some special guests. Stay with us. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. Seriously wrong. You're wrong. You're seriously wrong. Today's episode of The Seriously Wrong Show is brought to you by Technically Not Lying, Anti-Populism. Hi, I'm the best of multiple bad options, and I just wanted to be the first to let you know that during the campaign, I'm going to do stuff like saying that I'm going to give you $1,000, and then after the election, I'm going to say it's actually $1,000 per family under certain conditions. I'm a social democrat, baby. Throw out that populist promise, then snap shut like a clam trap. Booyah. You better learn to lower your expectations. We already gave you $600, so it's $2,000 total. Technically not lying, anti-populism. A promise made is a promise kept. Conditions apply. Welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. This week we have a very special episode. We're joined by Michael Schwartz and Kevin Young, authors of the book Levers of Power. Great book. We'll have a link in the description if you want to check it out. Thanks a lot for being here today to talk about your book, guys. Good to be here with you. Thank you for having us. First, before we get on, maybe we can talk a little bit about what drives you each to the subject matter of this book. So this book is about the levers of power in society, the way that the business class, the capitalist class affects politics. And so first, Kevin, what brought you to this topic? I've been concerned with politics and the state of the world since I was a teenager. I'm interested in the ways that we actually bring about meaningful change in government policy and how we actually fix some of the urgent crises that we're facing, foremost among them the climate emergency. The typical way that people try to go about solving those problems is by electing different politicians and then pressuring those politicians once they get into office. But what we've seen in recent decades and 
particularly with the Obama administration, is that there was an enormous disconnect between the promises of the administration and the hopes of the electorate for change on the one hand and the actual policies that came out on the other end once Obama entered office. So that's the dilemma, the conundrum that really led us to undertake this project is how can we explain that disjunction between the progressive hopes and dreams of the electorate and the policies that actually resulted. And Michael, what brought you into this process for looking at the levers of power? Well, I'm an old codger. I guess, you know, if I want to dignify it, I'll call myself an elder at this point. I was active in the civil rights movement and I was a math major. I was a math major active in the civil rights movement, getting myself arrested out in San Francisco, the most liberal city in America in those days. Our organization was called the Ad Hoc Committee to End Discrimination. And we took that ad hoc part seriously. We thought we were going to take about six months off from school, be active, have big sit-ins, and get rid of discrimination in San Francisco. Well, after a couple of years of it and a thousand arrests and tens of thousands of demonstrators and some successes, I began to realize that the amount of progress we made was small compared to the amount of progress we had to do. And so I said, well, you know, I better start figuring out why this isn't happening in liberal San Francisco anyway. And so I started picking up a sociology major to try to figure it out. That didn't help much. I'll tell you that because all the sociologists were telling me, oh yeah, mass movements can't do anything. They'll probably just hurt things. And you just got to wait for the cycle and the evolution, the positive evolution of the world is going to move in that positive direction on its own free will. But don't worry, it will happen. Just be patient, which is exactly what the Black movement was being told all along. And so I thought, well, that didn't suit any of our mentality. So I actually decided to go to graduate school in sociology and try to figure it out. So I've been trying to figure that out ever since. And of course, the biggest part of figuring it out is figuring out why the federal government, which was supposed to be on the side of integration, was doing so little. I still remember one of the worst lessons I learned was, you know, in those days, the courts were on our side. And whenever anything really bad happened, you hope to go to court and get the court to say, this law is illegal, this policy is illegal, these arrests are thrown out of court because you were doing nonviolent legal protest. But President Kennedy, our big hero, the guy that wrote a letter to Martin Luther King while he was in jail and said, I'm going to make civil rights happen. During his tenure in office, he appointed 13 judges in the South. 12 of them were rip-roaring racists, and the 13th was a liberal racist. And what was that about? That really caught my attention. And I went to my race relations advisor in graduate school and asked him that question. He said, well, all you got to do is look at the nature of politics, and you're going to see that President Kennedy was under the thumb of the Southern senators, the Southern Democratic senators who held all this power. And I said, oh, okay. So ever since then, I've been trying to figure out how politics policy really works. And the one thing you always come up against, and this is what Kevin was gesturing at, is you find out very quickly that public opinion has very little to do with policy. Maybe in some very indirect, refracted ways, you can find public opinion correlated with policy. But these things like integration, where the whole country was in favor of it, except the white people in the South, it still didn't happen. It's 12 years after the Supreme Court decision that made segregation in schools illegal. There were no integrated schools in the South. They only started integrating when black people risked their lives to integrate them. And then it's been the same ever since. And I've spent my lifetime banging my head against that wall. 
all my research and my activism has always been around how do we actually make the changes happen that should take place? You know, how do we stop oppression and inequality? And unfortunately, I've been living my life through a period, the bulk of which is all these problems have been getting worse. And they've always had that whole mediation of public policy not doing what it's supposed to do, presidents not doing what they're supposed to do. And this book came about six months after Obama took office. You know, we had a lot of listservs going around in those days. And on one of these listservs, somebody wrote, what about the Obama conundrum? And what's the Obama conundrum? Why did we elect a progressive president? And all we're getting are unprogressive policies. And it was already, the complexion of it was already there. And we started this kind of roundtable discussion, maybe 150 of us trying to figure this out. And that went on for about a year. And then Kevin and me and eventually Tyrone started writing stuff up from this and putting things together and having articles and different combinations of people working on trying to understand this. And we've never stopped since then. Wouldn't you say that's the origins of the book, Kevin? Yeah, it was inspired by the early months of the Obama administration. But at the same time, we saw that problem as reflective of a much bigger dynamic in U.S. politics and even well beyond the U.S. I mean, we're really talking about how political power works in capitalist economies. That's the big, large-scale question that we're thinking about using Obama as a key case study, which I think has important implications for how we understand the Biden administration today, given that Biden came in with some progressive platforms, as well as some not-so-progressive platforms. And there's currently a big discussion about how the left should try to engage with the Biden administration and how we can most effectively shape policy. So I think that there are a lot of lessons from the Obama years for how we understand our current predicaments. Yeah, and it's sort of a common sense thing in a way where people are like, hey, all these politicians are kind of jokers. They don't really seem to do what they say. They sometimes make good promises. They never keep their best promises. If they make a good promise and a bad promise, you can bet which one they're going to keep even before they're elected. This is sort of common sense. At the top level, why is it that you can elect someone like Obama who campaigns on saying, I'm going to be the moment the sea levels stop rising, that my election is going to be the moment where the sea levels start to go down, but then still get the policies that we ended up seeing from Obama, which he wasn't hardly an environmental leader, at the very least compared to that high watermark. Why is that? Well, I think the example of environmental policy under Obama is really interesting. This is one of the realms where Obama, the candidate, made some very progressive policies. And that quote that you just cited of his, where he talks about how this is the moment where the planet begins to heal and the rise of the oceans begins to slow upon becoming the official Democratic nominee in 2008. And this is also a realm where he was backed up in that opinion by an overwhelming tide of public opinion. The public, by a large majority, was on board with the idea that there should be stronger protections and regulations targeting the fossil fuel industry and other businesses in the United States, that the government needed to impose stronger environmental protections for the public, for workers, for consumers. They even agreed by a large margin, something like 78%, we quote the poll in the book, that the United States should enter an international treaty to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at a global level. But, you know, a treaty, a formal binding treaty is something that neither political party has seriously considered in decades, actually. 
So this is one place where the public was far to the left. And we're talking about even supporters of John McCain in 2008, supporters of the Republican candidate said that they wanted to see stronger environmental regulations. And so this really goes against what we typically hear about the public. You know, the public supposedly doesn't care very much about the environment and so on. So there is this enormous disjunction between Obama's rhetoric and the policies that he began to pursue in 2009. And what we saw in 2009, 2010 and onward was that Obama was bending over backwards to avoid angering the fossil fuel industries. He was doing everything he could to ensure that any kind of climate legislation or regulations wouldn't upset them too much, that it wouldn't seriously jeopardize their profitability. We need to ask, why was that? And it so happens that the Democrats and Obama in particular, Obama was not particularly beholden to the fossil fuels industries if we look at campaign finance, which is probably the factor that's most often cited to explain corporate political power in the United States. So with Obama, he wasn't getting oil money in order to get elected. It wasn't like he's getting his pockets super padded by oil while he's saying this stuff about climate. I mean, he received some money from energy industries, but as a percentage of his overall campaign financing, it was pretty minuscule. So why do we see the policies that we did once Obama got into office? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the structural power of the energy industries themselves, such that Obama felt compelled from the get-go to both avoid any regulations that they would view as onerous, and also to take a more proactive approach in furthering their interests. So Obama actually bragged to business audiences over the course of his term that he had been so ambitious and so aggressive in expanding oil and gas pipelines fracking, drilling, permits for those kinds of extraction, and so on. He didn't say that very publicly, certainly not to environmentalists. But if you look at the business press and you look at what Obama was saying to the oil and gas industries, he was saying, look, I'm not such a bad guy. I've expanded the oil and gas pipelines in this country enough to circle the earth and then some. And he was actually being modest. If we look at the actual data, the mileage of pipelines, it expanded by enough to circle the earth about seven times. Likewise, we see a huge expansion in oil train shipments across the United States during Obama's tenure. So on one hand, he was concerned with trying to prevent any sort of reform legislation from infringing on the profitability and the power of the fossil fuels industries, and then also aggressively taking these proactive measures to advance their profitability. It becomes a mystery. Why would he do that? This is one of the things that we were grappling with from the very beginning. It wasn't a good electoral strategy. It wasn't as though he needed them to get reelected. During that period, everybody was talking about whenever Obama did something that didn't look like it was consistent with what he had promised and or consistent with public opinion, it would say, well, he's trying to get reelected. He's trying to get reelected. He's trying to get reelected. But after he got reelected, that behavior became even more severe. And then people started looking for other electoral strategies. Well, he has to do this because he needs to get himself a Democratic Congress, and he can only do that by inviting these kinds of conservative things so he can get the supports, et cetera. The whole argument wears thin pretty quick. The closer to the situation you get, really the elephant in the elevator at the beginning of the Obama administration is the crash. Everybody knew that the crash was the elephant in the elevator and that he had to do something to stop the crash. 
what was the problem after the crash? That's the part that never got to the public, which is you always heard that Wall Street got hit, but so did Main Street. And that what Obama did was he rescued Wall Street in order that Wall Street would then rescue Main Street. That was the strategy that he adopted. And that was the public stance. And what does that mean? Well, it turns out the big corporations, they had a ton of investment capital. And it was very soon after the crash that that capital could have been profitably invested in all sorts of different sectors in the United States, including housing and the other places that were depressed. And it wasn't happening. And the accumulated capital, the retained capital in these corporate coffers went over a trillion dollars. It went over $2 trillion. It went over $3 trillion in the course of the Obama administration. They were holding back their investment capital. And what they were saying is, we need you to set up a whole bunch of policies that we want in order to make us happy. And these policies, once we get them, then you'll start seeing the economy revive. There were very specific policies that were being looked for. And one of them was opening up the ability for extractive carbon industries to continue to multiply themselves, especially fracking during that period. That was the period of the heyday of fracking. And so you started to see policies that reflected that on the basis that they were saying to him, you won't get the investment capital you need to revive Main Street unless you give us this stuff. You saw an administration that just continued to do that for a long time. And that's why we put in the center of the book the notion of the capital strike, because this is one capital strike, a very important one in the recent history of the United States. But what is really going on throughout the history of the United States, or let's say throughout the history of the 21st century, just to keep things contemporary, is that over and over and over again, corporations, Wall Street, the big finance capitalists, the investors have said, we will not invest in this sector unless we will pull our money out of this sector unless we will not invest in American economy unless. And the unless always carried, unless you have a public policy that does X, Y, Z for us. It became terrible. When we were doing this research, we would just pose a question to ourselves. Why haven't they ever fixed the bridges? And then we would just go research and find out that the bridges were never going to be fixed unless, and you found out what the investment capitalists were talking about. That's why at the core of this capital strike idea, the core that goes way back to the history of capitalism, which is that what capitalism is characterized by is private corporations get to decide where the investment capital goes. This is their source of power. They get to decide whether we're going to build bridges. They get to decide whether we're going to have automobiles or trains. They get to decide whether we're going to have environmentally functional buildings or whether they're going to leak energy like crazy so that we have to have more energy. They get to decide all those things because they decide how the buildings are going to be built. They decide whether there's going to be investment capital to build highways or whether there's going to be investment capital to build rails. They get to decide this. We have private decision-making over the policies that affect the public. So you have elected officials who then have to 
begin the process of negotiations with unelected officials. Right. Otherwise, they're not going to get the monetary velocity within their economy that causes economic success by all the measures that they use. Because when we think about strikes, we usually think about workers, yeah. you know, your boss doesn't need you, you need them. And then that's happening on an institutional level where this is corporations talking to each other. We don't need the president. The president needs us. So we're going to withhold all of our capital to extract demands out of them using the same sort of process that happens in workplaces, except on a large, much more powerful scale <laughs> and the bad guys doing it. A really simple example of that is the crash was caused by derivatives, these crazy trading processes by which you bet on a whole sector gathered together as an investment place on whether it's going to go up or down. And the derivatives are then the bet on which is going to happen in what direction. And when it came time for derivatives to be regulated during the financial regulation bill-making that took place in 2009 and 10, Wall Street said, we don't want the derivatives to be regulated. If you regulate them, you're going to just find that all this investment capital in the United States is going somewhere else. And so they didn't get regulated. And now we are on a trajectory that definitely suggests we're going to have another crash precisely because they didn't get regulated. This is an amazing thing that they are so powerful that they can actually demand that policies be regulated that guarantee another crash. It's a very scary proposition. We now go to newly elected president Better Hope Change II as he sets out to pragmatically and optimistically enact his bold agenda for a better country. They said the moderate couldn't win, couldn't make things better, but I'm here to show them wrong. Oh, it's the phone. Who is it? President Hope Change. Hey, it's me, your hard nosed chief of staff. Just the person I wanted to hear from, because there's a lot of important issues in the country. Absolutely. I mean, getting the other guy out, first and foremost. Absolutely. Now that that's done, moving on, I just keep returning to what I said during the campaign to people like Maria and Pueblo, who came to our country to find opportunity crushed by high rents, telecom fees, medical debt. What can we do to lessen all that financial burden? And I mean, after all, we did a commercial with them blaming all their problems on my opponents. So uh, I've been talking to stakeholders in the industries affected by this stuff. You know, we need to get buy-in from our partners. I've got two big policies on the income inequality pieces. First of all, I think we should have price caps on gas tax increases. Now, gas tax increases make a huge dent in the pocket of people like Maria and Pueblo. And the other thing that we're looking at here as part of our bold first phase is we're going to be offering free internet access. And I know what you're thinking, why that's socialism. Well, listen, it's not going to be socialism because it's only going to be people who have a steady job who are earning less than 15K a year and don't have a criminal record. That way, if they can prove those things, they can get the free internet access. And that way, the people who need the help the most and deserve it and can prove they deserve it, get it. Are you stunned by the boldness of the proposal? Here, let me put it like, I really appreciate what you're trying to do for me, and I definitely appreciate all those stakeholders. Business confidence, you know, super important. But there's got to be a bit more of a middle ground. I mean, those aren't bad things, but I think we could do better. Absolutely. I mean, I 
think we are doing better than the previous guy by a lot. I mean, here's another idea is, you know, Maria and Pueblo, they had this crushing medical debt. Well, we want to introduce something. It's a healthcare savings account, right? So this is a place where people can save up money for a rainy day when medical debts happen, if they're responsible, and they can put that money aside. And I think actually, I've been talking to a few stakeholders in the medical industry, and I think if we're bold enough to ask politely, the medical industry will allow us to create a program where the state matches the healthcare subsidy. So we'll actually pay out of our general revenue. If you put in $150 to your healthcare savings account and you're responsible, well, the state will match you $150 for your medical stuff. And this is sort of the way that we're seeing it is how do we make sure that only the people who really deserve it get it? This is what the data is showing us. And you were elected because you're not trying to take everything that's not bolted down and give it away. You know, you're trying to create responsible, pragmatic systems. And that's what the voters are looking for. And it's bold. You know, you always have starry eyed visions, but what you're describing there, that does sound pretty bold, like the government matching it. I could see it that way. Yeah, that is a bold first step. You, sir, have the boldest vision on medical care that we've seen from any president for a long time. It's a three point plan. You've got your health care savings accounts. And I mean, obviously, you have to work across the aisle for that. That's a challenge. But we have clearance from industry. You've got your interest-free loans and mortgage refinancing for elders to get their medication. And we're going to reduce medical wait times by ensuring that the only people using the hospital are the people who can prove they have a right to be there. If you do that, you're going to speed up the whole system and people are going to be feeling it right away. And the people who vote the most, frankly, sir, are the ones who are going to be feeling it right away. The other question I had for you is about Bernice, the teacher from Virginia. Her classroom has textbooks that are decades old and classroom sizes. You couldn't pack another child in there and be under fire regulations. Let's put it that way. How are we going to make sure those children aren't falling through the cracks? Right. That's a great question. Well, I think what's looking like we can do is digital AI teacher replacements handled by some of the most trusted Silicon Valley partners to save money by actually increasing class sizes. Children socializing with one another is one of the most important things for their development. In that spirit, we want to encourage that by increasing class sizes so they can spend more time with their peers and have more peers. And then, obviously, one teacher with 75 students without any sort of AI-mediated digital help is going to be a handful. And so that's why we wanted to create a program I did look Bernice in the eyes on national television in front of all the news cameras and say, help is on the way. And it is. So sending an AI teacher. Okay. Yeah. That's a type of help. It's on the way. And I think this is a place where we can be unapologetic about this. How are we going to pay for that? Well, we're going to pay for that with a tax on tutors, which are often being paid under the table. So not paying their fair share. On the policing piece, now we need to green the police forces. And that's been obvious for a long time and obvious to our campaign police should be the leaders on climate change. And in order to do that, we need to build up some political capital with them. So one of the great things about this is it's through this AI-mediated digital teaching program, we're actually able to provide a lot of information to law enforcement, winning some points with them so we can convince them to green their industry. Oh, wow. It just reminds me of Desiree, you know, a small girl whose life was touched by violence, who felt failed by the police system in her neighborhood. When I posed for a magazine cover with her and people were chanting, save them, save them. And I said, I'll do it. I'll save them all. I meant it. If we can fix the police force and solve climate change with the police force at the same time, that's a policy worthy of better hope change the first, my father. I've always wanted to live up to his name. It's a bold vision of a 21st century leadership, and I think you should be proud. 
it might feel like we're turning a little bit away from some of the lofty rhetoric of the campaign because a group of business leaders have an informal and ad hoc network of influencing us and our ideas of what is possible or desirable is shaped by their buy-in and their threat of withholding their investment from the economy is part of what people are going to judge our presidency on and so on and so on. But I really think there hasn't been any compromise at all. Like you said during your campaign, we're having courage enough to open our heart to America. Yeah. So it is bold, sir. And it's bold to be realistic. Yeah, in an unrealistic age, it is bold to be realistic, sir. That is absolutely correct. Bold to be realistic. It's me. Let's do it. You know what? We are going to save America. I still believe it. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for your vision. And I'm going to keep on meeting with those stakeholders, and I'll let you know if we have to tone any of this radical stuff down. But hopefully we don't. Fingers crossed. And it's your vision, sir. Your vision guides us, sir. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. There's two big concepts in this book that I feel like it would be so good if everyone understood. And one of them is the capital strike, which I feel like we've got a good insight into. There's other aspects you talk about as well when it comes to, say, media antagonism and the way the business press can help shape public opinion against people. The other aspect of this, and this is often even used in very mainstream media, is a term that sounds innocuous, but the more I've thought about it in the light of your book, the more I've been like, this is some really double-speaky stuff. It's the term business confidence. When we talk about business confidence, it's not confidence that people have in business. It's the confidence that businesses have in politicians. Do you want to talk a little bit about the shape of business confidence in our political system? Yeah, business confidence is tightly related to the capital strike. There are kind of two ways in which business confidence is defined. One is the mainstream definition of the term that's used in a lot of business journals and, and newspapers. And that definition implies that business confidence is based on a set of objective indicators, impersonal economic data about consumer demand and consumer confidence in the economy. Right. Almost as if it's like, oh, we think it's a great idea too, but but you got to play by these weird rules. We're in favor of a green world and all that, but just look at the numbers on these spreadsheets. We can't have confidence in this plan. <laughs> right. And what that definition misses is the fact that there are all of these other more subjective considerations that go into businesses' logic, the logic of business executives when they're deciding whether they're going to invest their capital in the economy and how they're going to invest it. The considerations that Michael was mentioning before, things that also come under this banner of business confidence have to do with expectations of business executives about healthcare policy or about protections for the consumer or about workers' rights or about regulations on polluters. All of those kinds of things are part of the logic of business confidence, and they feed into the logic of executives and investors when they're trying to make decisions about investments. So we often see investors and executives making demands on government that don't have any immediate connection to the immediate crisis or problem at hand. So if we go back to the Great Recession under Obama, a lot of the demands that we were seeing from corporate America had nothing to do with the initial causes of the disinvestment from the economy, the initial economic downturn. They were making all sorts of demands about tax policy, about regulations, about foreign trade agreements, regulations on polluters. And it became the, the job of Obama, and he recognized this, 
to boost the confidence of business. And that was understood to mean that he needed to cut taxes for corporations, slash regulations, pursue these pro-corporate investment deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for instance, all as a way of boosting confidence so that those corporations would agree to release their capital and invest it back into the economy thereby bailing out Main Street. Because Obama refused to bail out Main Street directly. As Michael said, he was envisioning that he would bail out Wall Street and then Wall Street would in turn invest its money in the economy. Just to add a couple of points about business confidence, often you hear about business confidence when the stocks start declining, when the Dow Jones declines, when Wall Street takes a downturn. And of course, everybody's very upset when it takes a downturn because everybody's pensions and so on and so forth are all tied in with that. You often hear they say, okay, there's a policy pronouncement being made and we saw a downturn in the stock market. And then they say, because business confidence is on the decline, the investors don't feel like this is going to be good for the economy. And so we see an early warning system in this drop in the stock market. What this really is about, it is an early warning system. And the early warning is Look, if this policy is pursued, what's going to happen is that the investors, that's the private investors, that's the finance capitalists, the ones that have the money to invest in the American economy or this sector, the medical sector, or this sector, energy, they're not going to be willing to invest in this investment atmosphere. So don't enact this policy because what's going to happen is Instead of getting something good out of this policy, you are going to get a recession, disinvestment, a decline in that sector or in the whole economy, and then we'll all suffer. So now you can get a capital strike causing a change in policy without ever really doing anything, without ever having the capital strike. All you need is either the business press saying, oh, you know, we're talking to the executives. Business confidence is on the way down because of this policy. And I think a perfect example of that is happening right at this very moment. Biden has just announced his stimulus plan, his infrastructure plan, which is also a stimulus plan. And the Republicans are already sounding the alarm. They haven't started to use the term business confidence yet, but they are saying that if you do this and you raise these taxes on business, Business confidence is going to go down and the investment capital is not going to be materialized for an expansion of the economy. That's what they're saying right now. So it's a perfect business confidence argument. And we will be hearing the phrase business confidence over and over again in the next months as this is all debated. And it'll be very interesting to see whether the Democrats are going to decide that they're going to stand up to the corporate elite and test whether they really are going to disinvest in the economy because of it. Because that's what they're saying. They're going to take their money overseas. Instead of having this high tax rate for here, they'll go somewhere else with it. And it's possible that they will, and it's possible that they won't. Because all we're doing in this moment is just having a discussion about what they are going to do. It's very interesting to be able to see this as it is occurring. And it's also very depressing to realize that this kind of threat can be made casually. And then the fate of the world is at stake here. If for no other reason, going back to the environmental question, there's a lot of environmental elements to this infrastructure plan that he's talking about that are pretty important. I was looking at, for example, how much was being put into roads and how much was being put into public transportation. And the proportion is not a positive one 
if we're going to continue to build roads instead of public transportation and then put gas guzzlers on the road, and I didn't see anything in there that really very specifically said we're going to create some kind of regulation that's going to reduce the number of gas guzzlers in this world, and that threat was already applied. Now, that's scary. That's where we have to intervene. I think that Biden's climate policy, his energy policy to this point, is still within the essential framework of the Obama administrations in that he's essentially pursuing an all of the above energy strategy, which we know scientifically, ecologically is disastrous. It's suicidal. Where Biden has differed is in his rhetoric and in some of his initial appointments and policy gestures around climate, he does appear to be significantly better, significantly more attuned with the science than Obama was. So we've seen some hopeful signs, including some of the talk about investments in renewables and the Biden infrastructure bill apparently includes some sales rebates and tax incentives for electric vehicles and solar and wind power extending those tax credits for those industries. So that's positive and that'll make some difference, but we have yet to see him really target the fossil fuels industries directly. He seems to be betting that by stimulating more investment in the renewable sectors that we can solve the problem that way and then make solar and wind more competitive than the carbon-based industries and thereby solve the climate emergency. I think that that should make us very concerned because while those investments in the green or greener technologies are extremely important, that needs to be complemented by a direct attack on the fossil fuels industries themselves, which Biden doesn't seem to be contemplating at this point. He's got an all carrot, no stick approach to the energy industry at this point. Yes, I think so. I think one of the terms we should bring up at this point is deregulation. Because in the recent history, in the three-decade recent history of the world economy, deregulation was the rule of the world. We haven't reversed that yet. And that is what has to be reversed. Because what regulation basically is, is saying that the government has at least some say over the choice of where the investments will go. That's what regulation really is. It's saying, where are you going to put your money? It takes a lot of forms. It says you can't do this and you can't do that, or you have to do this, you know, clean up the factory. You have to clean up the factory. You can't have this much pollution in the factory. But that is just another way of saying you have to put money into not polluting. You have to take your investment capital and put some of it into not polluting. And deregulation says, no, you get to decide. And Biden has not crossed the line. He did cross one line. He crossed the line of, I will raise taxes. For 30 years, nobody ever said that. Only cut them. And then you argue about who's you're going to cut. So the liberals get to cut for middle class people and the conservatives get to cut for the corporations. And then you have this argument, who are you going to cut for? At least he crossed that line. He went back over that line and said, we have to tax the corporations. So I think that's a positive statement if he follows through on it. But notice that even the liberal media started with that one. They said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. You say you're going to get the money out of the corporations, but if you try to do that, the corporations are going to take their money and run, which is a capital strike. The thing is, is once you get this kind of lens for looking at U.S. politics, you just see these capital strikes, these business confidence arguments being made all the time. 
I felt like since I've thought more about some of the mechanisms that underlie this, it's wild how much of this is happening in public. It's just happening in this way that uses different language or speaks differently in different contexts, the way that this is reflected to the general public. There's almost like a type of fetishism where we act like the stocks are this thing with agency and, oh my God, we have to ride the stocks like a wild animal or something, rather than being decisions made by individuals. It's not like wild animals that need to be tamed. Oh, the stock market's running away. Everyone supports the ideas. It's just that these animals are so wild. It's actually people making decisions based on trying to maximize themselves within a context where they have disproportionate power. Understanding that mechanism has just like, yeah, you turn on the mainstream news and it's like, oh, this is what they're actually talking about. Everyone knows the game. They just know how to talk about it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Added emphasis should be put on the idea that the stock market is treated as though it's some kind of automatic process and not just automatic. It happens without anybody making decisions, which is inaccurate. But <laughs> beyond that not making decisions, it is always correct. Stock market is always for the general welfare. And when you see the stocks going up, that means that things are good. And when you see stocks going down, you know that's bad. You made it angry. Right? You got a human sacrifice. <laughs> Bring right. it back. All of us are going to suffer if it goes down. By the way, when you look at the implementation of policy into the details of policymaking, especially when you look at implementation of policy rather than the legislation of policy, they have gotten that deregulatory idea so embedded that a corporation can actually go into court when one of the regulatory agencies say environmental protection. And they can go into court and say, for example, one of the proposals that is integral to the stimulus plan that's part of the coronavirus attack, right? Let's get rid of the coronavirus, is that corporations have to clean up the workplace because they're spreading coronavirus there. I mean, in the meatpacking plants, it's legendary by now. They just refuse to set up a sanitary condition, which would be better for the food, better for the workers, and would stop coronavirus spreading. And their defense against doing that is to say it would lower our profits. Not that we would become unprofitable, if they can show that it would lower their profits to do this, then they don't have to do it. That's amazing because now what we're saying is maximum profit is a legal requirement. There's a place where the Obama administration has to go. They have to, Kevin, you know the technical term for that. What do they call that? Cost benefit analysis. Cost benefit analysis. Right. So anytime there's a regulation proposed by the executive branch of government, it has to go through this battery of tests to evaluate its impact on all of the so-called stakeholders, workers, consumers, investors, and so on. In itself, that's not necessarily a bad concept, I suppose, but the way that the definition of cost-benefit analysis has developed over time under both Republican and Democratic administrations has been to focus on the impacts on the regulated sectors themselves. So the law that Michael was referring to came under President Clinton in 1996, defining capital formation, in the words of the law, as a preeminent consideration for whether a regulation would be allowed to go through and be legally implemented. So if a regulation was going to reduce prospects for capital formation, so profitability essentially, and investment in these regulated sectors themselves, that's a legal basis to challenge it in court. And corporations have been extremely effective and extremely aggressive 
at challenging regulations in court based on these cost-benefit analyses. And the very definition of cost-benefit analysis is deeply skewed in their favor. Right. We don't do a cost-benefit analysis for the sea level acidity and stuff. It doesn't factor in. Even the cost-benefit analysis for their workers, if the cost of cleaning it up to the workers is $2 billion worth of medical care, we don't factor that in. That doesn't become, oh, well, it's $2 billion in medical care for the workers, but we can get rid of that $2 billion in medical care, but the corporations will lose $100 million in profits. Oh, well, they can't lose the $100 million in profits, so the worker's going to have to pay the $2 billion. Or even the health insurance companies are going to have to pay the $2 billion, whatever it was. That's not preeminent. What is preeminent is, quote, capital formation, which is retained earnings, which is profit. Right. So there's a big pick starting to be drawn here. Well, we can say Clinton in the 90s, his administration put this corporate legislation that protects corporate profits and puts a legal responsibility to not interfere with corporate profits because probably at the time, this is just me speculating, there was some threat against Clinton from the business community that if you don't put in our preferred types of legislation, then we're going to withhold our investment. So as a result, you're going to have an unsuccessful sputtering economy. We're going to get all of our newspapers to talk about what a dipshit you are and everyone's going to hate you and your legacy is going to be that you ruined everything. And so they're up against the wall and they're like, okay, fine, I'm going to put this thing into law. But then structurally for the next 25, 30 years, it limits all the next generations where businesses now have this really powerful tool to say, well, actually, we'd rather our workers die of COVID than decrease our quarterly profits. And then the judge, by word of the law that originated in the corporate sector, passed through the Democrats in power by threat of capital strike, the judge looks at it and the judge can't be like, well, this is morally wrong, so I'm going to go against the law. The judge has to go with the law. And the law is like, well, it's true. You're making $5 less every day, so we don't have anything about the human life aspect, so we rule in favor. And that process continuing over time, uninterfered with and unexamined, seems massively dangerous, perhaps civilized ending eventually when you put <laughs> when you put all this stuff in the control of corporations focus on that profitability argument maybe in the 90s it might not have seemed at the time like this legislation might lock us on a collision course with human extinction but that is kind of the case not to get too morbid but we're at war war with loose epistemologies that make us think tom hanks is sending us secret messages war with inverse personality cults that hypnotize us into learned helplessness we're at war with the creeping forces in industry inequality and media that boost the sellouts praying at the temple of mammon we are the rebel forces we are the navi keeping our unobtainium we are the light warriors who use mentality brain tricks to tame nightmare basilisks my name is felix bones and welcome to narrative wars Before we take some calls from the audience today, I just want to give a moment to make a special shout out to Free Thinking Mattresses. I use this product myself and it allows me to have a deep and restful sleep where I am not burdened by the documents of the day. This ultra soft and 100% American made mattress is your own personal free speech paradise where the hierarchical powers of society cannot stop you from criticizing them, both in speech and in deed. I've read all the reports and I can confirm that these are the mattresses that they don't want you to know about. If you use the coupon code AOC didn't say that, you'll get 20% off your first order. 
Now today we're going to be going to the phones, folks. We've been covering a few real things today. The CIA Family Jewels Report, the impact of Canadian mining companies on human rights, and the capital strike, the ways in which the business class uses the threat of capital strikes to blackmail politicians. And I want to remind our listeners, please bring the documents if you're going to be making any claims of your own, because that is what a real narrative warrior does. All right, now to the lines. We have got Bennis. How is it going, Bennis? You know, Felix, with all this talk about, oh, the conspiracy is not really a conspiracy, I'm starting to wonder if maybe you aren't in on the conspiracy, Felix. Are you in on the conspiracy? No. Have they gotten to you, Felix? Be honest. No, they have not gotten to me. I know a lot of you people became fans at the time when I was saying that they were literally sulfuric demons doing murderous rituals and stuff. Over time, I've come to realize uh, I'm not sure it's productive to make those types of claims when we have ample evidence of real crimes, but I'm such a respecter of free speech and expression. I want to hand it now back to you to see if there's anything productive that you want to mention. Like, do you want to talk about a subject that we covered today or? I need you to blink at least once in the next minute if they've compromised you. No. I'll be watching, and if you do, I just, I'll know that you but, are and that we should. Before oh, I end this call, it? was that the blink? Oh. I just want to say very clearly, I'm not sending any secret messages to anyone. I've never sent secret messages on the show. He's in on the conspiracy. I blink frequently at a rate of more than once per 60 seconds. Next caller. Yeah, hi, Felix. I don't want to have this descend into some unproductive thing like the last caller. Thank you. But I do have to bring up, you used to say that what drove politicians to bad acts was that they were driven to a blood frenzy after consuming the blood of children on behalf of literal ghosts and ghouls. It's not representative of But now you're saying the ghosts and ghouls were metaphorical? I have used rhetorical flourish. Wow. I would say there was a time when I was open-minded to this possibility. I've come to realize from the weight of the evidence that it's not the case. I don't want to misrepresent the past, but I didn't take it as seriously as some of you do. Oh my god, the phone. I can smell the sulfuric demon stench. They've got to him. No, oh my god. I actually ah. don't. Oh, the phone's getting hot. It's burning It sounds like me. an issue with your phone. It's magic demons, no, it's, Felix. Magic demons. It's not magic demons. I've said before on the show, and I've been consistent on this, it is not magic demons. Demons causing the issues of our society is large systemic forces related to profit, lobbying, various social forces put on politicians that prevent them from enacting transformative change that we need, based in part to philosophical confusion that's fostered by the ultra-rich intentionally. Next caller. <laughs> um, uh, hello, Felix. I'm the CEO of the most evil corporation and the president of the Illuminati. I just wanted to call in to say I'm so proud of you. You're really doing great work out there. Not a funny idea for a prank call. You're helping us do evil. It's really one of those prank calls that's not a funny one, but I'm happy to give it more time. Free speech is the ointment that will soothe anyone. Oh, I'm not pretending, Felix. Well, you are pretending. This isn't for laughs. It's clearly obviously for laughs. No, I'm not lying. Well, actually you are. No. Well, you're coming here and you're actually telling a lie very clearly. No, no, no. I'm just so happy how you keep the people asleep for us, Felix. No, I don't. I wake them up. As the CEO, I love that. If you actually were the CEO, you'd be crying about my work. But instead, you're smiling. That shows you're not the CEO. I'm waking up the masses. That's exactly what you hate the most. Magical Demon Truth 2021. Felix Bones is a fraud. Magical demons are the real problem behind everything. And Felix has been compromised, people. Uh, Don't buy his products. Now, if you start talking about our sponsors, that's where I'm going to turn this call off. You can talk about me. But if you start talking about the wonderful people who make this show possible, you've just made an enemy. The tactical bath bomb doesn't help anything. My wife hated it. That's it. Sorry, folks. (sighs) After the break, 
We're going to be going over the things that I think we cannot infer from Jeffrey Epstein. Stay with us. If judges are in a position where they can only think about the duty to shareholders and the duty to profit, and they're not able to think about all of the other things, the environmental impacts, the worker impact, and they're just legally not allowed to even consider that, it's very, very dangerous because we know that the profit motive is often out of sync with every other ethical human intuition. And the profit motive can be against the welfare of the population. It's not just ethics. It's not just morals. It's the material life of the people. We've seen that historically go on forever. You can just pick up any book about the Industrial Revolution and see what it did to people's health. Mm -hmm. They're enshrining it in the law, then they're enshrining it in the judicial part of the law. And that makes it very hard to undo. That combination is very hard to undo. But when they were considering Dodd-Frank, they wrote rules that would have abrogated this. But then in the enforcement part of it, in the implementation part of it, they compromised it again. It's another big part of how the 1% rules piece. You give examples in the book of times where seemingly good legislation is passed, like a big proposal for something good. It's passed through and yay, victory, you know, like the grassroots did it. But then there's this multi-year process of putting that into application where the majority of activists, their hands are off. They're not professionals working on this. There's a million things fighting for activist concern, but the business class, the lobbyists, yeah. uh, the lawyers, they get hard to work to remove every tooth from <laughs> from the mouth of this legislation. Right. The better it is in the first place, the harder they want to take an axe to it in implementation. You give examples of this in the book, and it's another piece of like, why do we keep on getting the short end of the stick through this process? That's just another iteration of the same thing, because what happens in that decision-making process is that... There's lots of communication between the regulators and the companies they're going to regulate, whatever it is. And those companies repeatedly say the same thing over and over again. They say, you do that to us, we will take our money out. We'll take our ball and go home. Or we'll take our ball and go to Africa. We'll take our ball and go to Europe. We'll take our investment capital and go away. And you'll be left with this crippled industry that can't do anything. And you need that industry because your economy depends on it, or this sector of your economy depends on it. So that threat just keeps getting made. And a lot of the threats are empty. We have some great examples in there of where regulatory people who understood how the whole thing works and could bring forward evidence saying, yeah, you say, if we do this, you're going to disinvest. But I can show that it's been done before and you didn't disinvest and you couldn't disinvest. And if you tried to disinvest, you would lose more money than if you just stayed. But of course, they're going to go ahead and say that anyway, and they're going to get away with it especially going back to your talk about the Clinton administration, wholesale deregulating the economy, and especially the financial economy. He did it very simply. He appointed financial executives to do the deregulation. So the regulators weren't interested in regulating, they were interested in deregulating. So all these changes that increased profits without really being needed in order to increase profits, in order to maintain profitability, were just implemented by the executives who moved out of their position as executives at Goldman Sachs and Citibank, moved into the Clinton administration, and then said, yeah, this is really good and important stuff to do. So that's another way in which the capital strike operates, to say to politicians, your best way of guaranteeing that you don't have a capital strike is to appoint these people here who really understand how capital works. You won't get disinvestment. You won't lose 
business confidence because these are the guys that know how to manage it. Mm, yeah, they're former employees of us. That's what makes them understand the objective spreadsheets so well that they would never anger the economy. <laughs> There's something so funny about it. The way that it's conveyed to people that it's like a wild force and you need to hire <laughs> the right wild force tamers. But then you sort of look behind the curtain and it's like, wait, you guys are the force. I like that. There was a beautiful moment when Obama was president-elect. He wasn't president yet. And he appointed his economic policy team and it was all finance capitalists, you know, Simon and the gang. So somebody at a press conference or somebody actually asked him about this and said, you've said you're going to really tame Wall Street. You're going to really regulate them. How can you do that if you're appointing these guys that are Wall Street? And he said, I'm the president and they will do as I tell them to do. And it wasn't untrue. But what he didn't mention was he's going to tell them <laughs> to do as they wish. <laughs> you know, he's bringing them in so he could make sure that he didn't offend them, that he didn't get the capital strike, that the capital strike would end soon. Ironically, it didn't end soon. Mm. It didn't end at all. Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, he's got this really sort of telling anecdote of talking to Obama, where Obama told him in private, you know, in a quiet voice, you think I wanted to do this Wall Street bailout? That's against my politics. But sometimes you have to swallow a really bitter pill. It's almost sort of like folksy charm. <laughs> like, it's like a folksy charm twist on saying presidents aren't in control, just so you know. I think part of the reason that quote stuck in my brain is because it wasn't for public consumption. This is the private Obama trying to talk to the left and say, hey, hey, chill out. I've already been through this, and I'm going to give you the wise sage advice to just do what they say. But if I'm not mistaken, the guy he was speaking to tried to do the right thing when he was talking to the lenders, the German lenders that were going to rescue Greece. And he said, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to regulate the financial economy. And Germans said to them, they were leading the euro, uh-uh, you're going to do what we're telling you. And that finance minister was very soon no longer the finance minister. And he broke with the party. You know, they've elected this very progressive guy. And the progressive guy said, the president, whose name slips my mind, said, sometimes you have to swallow the bitter pill. I didn't have a choice. He said it in public. Obama said it in private. And I don't know whether he didn't have a choice. What would have happened had he said, we're going to default on the debt. We're going to just say, sorry, we can't pay it back. Go to hell. You know, it's happened many times. Back in the 60s, Brazil did it. And they got away with it completely. Argentina did it in the early 2000s. Yeah. But maybe he couldn't have gotten. Maybe it would have tanked the economy in a way that really is devastating. It's sort of a sad memory for me to remember all the details of the <laughs> downfall of Syriza and the capitulation, but I remember them using the language of the elderly not getting their medication was their big emotional narrative for why they were going to become subservient to the Troika again. If we don't do this, then the international finance is going to keep the medicine from coming into our country that's keeping our seniors alive, and we can't allow that. Mm -hmm. They basically brought it to a soft, oh, this is what we have to do kind of thing. What they were really saying is, Oh, the, the financiers are willing to kill our elderly. They're going to start killing hostages if we don't, if we don't subsume to their demands, yeah. which is a really outrageous and horrific thing to imagine. A president telling their country, our financiers are going to start killing hostages. So if you think back to, again, the Clinton administration, now the Clinton administration was under pressure to invade Iraq because of the whole nature of the power there. And they didn't. Instead, what they did is they imposed those sanctions financial sanctions. What you're talking about is absolutely true. They actually stopped medicines from being imported into Iraq. 
Nobody could sell those medicines to Iraq and they needed it. And the estimate is, is that 500,000 children died. And Secretary of State, well, what was her name? She later... Madeline Albright. Madeline Albright was asked about this and she said it was worth it. Wow, yeah. She said it was a good policy, it was worth it. I think that when Cyprus and Syriza in Greece was saying that, you know, this is what they're going to do to us if we don't follow their commands, he wasn't wrong. We've seen the savagery with which the political and financial elite treats populations. We see it in Iraq in the 90s. We see it currently in places like Iran and Venezuela, where the Biden administration is continuing the Trump administration sanction policies against those countries, with tens of thousands of people being killed as a result. Just in the first year of the Venezuela sanctions that Trump imposed, there were an estimated 40,000 Venezuelan civilians killed as a result because they couldn't get access to the food and the medicine. And the U.S. says, well, we don't block the import of food and medicine, but they're blocking Venezuela's oil revenues. Venezuela is having a much harder time exporting its oil and it's not able to get the replacement parts and other investment capital for the oil industry. So if it can't get access to that export revenue, how are they supposed to pay for imports of food and medicine? That's one of the most striking continuities that I've seen so far between the Trump and the Biden administrations. Biden has signaled that he's going to continue that. The foreign policy, it's been fairly seamless right through. I saw Lindsey Graham giggling and fluttering his eyelids about the nominee for the defense secretary. Lindsey Graham was just showering praise on Biden's defense secretary nominee. Like, I am so surprised. Such a well-spoken guy. He agrees with me on everything. This is perfect. And when Lindsey Graham is that happy where he's fluttering his eyelids on TV, like, this is the best. I mean, that is time to be like, what is Biden doing? He should be making Lindsey Graham cry. He should be storming out of the chamber. It should be such an outrage to Lindsey Graham, but instead he's showering him with praise. He's the best nominee he's ever seen. Very troubling. We've all spent this time over the whole Trump era. We're all banging the same drum. Trump is doing bad stuff. Then Biden switches out at the top, switch out some of the faces, following the same policies, and it sort of dissipates. The critique is softened because it's Biden's guy doing the same thing. It's sort of a tragic thing to see. Yeah, you can make that same argument around the border. The Republicans are having a lot of fun with that. Thousands and thousands of children incarcerated. And Kamala Harris is especially comical in her defense of this policy because she was so vigorous in her attack on it. But there's a lot of continuities. Mm -hmm. It all goes back to the same core, the policy core. These camps, they're an industry in themselves, too. The Department of Homeland Security and ICE and these private contractors that run these, you know, what they now call migrant overflow facilities, what they used to call kids in cages. It's a business, too, right? They have capital strike powers tied up in all this as well, right? Yeah. If you step back from it for a second and you look at the larger incarceration industry, which has grown up as a sort of new version of the military industrial complex so that you have the private sector and you have the public sector, and they operate together as a functioning unity. And part of what they do is lobby the government for policies that will enhance their power and preserve their leverage and preserve their profits. For example, in the book, we talk about the way the military is semi-autonomous and is a large institution of its own. And if you'd like to change military policy, a good way to do it is to pressure the military directly. 
Don't go to the civilian leadership of the military and ask them to do it, but go to the military. And, you know, the whole gay policy in the military was changed because gay people systematically, you know, uh, disrupted, let's just call it disrupted, the military with demands that they be able to be open. And then the military would have to do very disruptive things to itself in order to get rid of them or discipline them. And now we have this prison industrial complex, as some people call it, that includes the border patrol and ICE and so on and so forth. And they have their private aspect and their public aspect, and they make policy for themselves. And Biden comes in and he is looking at a policy being constructed by that agency and their corporate affiliates, if you want to call it that. And he has to try to spend political capital to get control of it. That's what he has to think about. And it's going to be a messy proposition. And who is he going to offend? And who is going to say, well, if you do that, then expect the following part of our economy to collapse. You will undermine business confidence in this sector. And that sector is large now. And it has a very big presence in the government. And it has a very, very, very large budget that it can decide what it's going to do with. And he has limited control over it. I don't think that it's impossible for Biden to do something constructive here, but he doesn't seem to be willing to take on the institutional opposition to it. This is why I was saying just before we started, I love the book and I read this book when Trump was still president. And it is the perfect book for the Biden era because these patterns are going to be happening so explicitly, repeatedly over the next four to eight years. I got so much context from reading this book that's helped me make sense of what's going on and how the 1% rules and why it is that you see the decisions taking the shape that they do in power, even when it seems to go against what people would claim to stand for. We're at peace. Peace with the business classes, the politicians, and the experts. We take the side of the less bad option to do data-driven urban analysis about what's reasonable and what's not. Our resolve is to bridge the gap, end the polarization, and amplify the voice of the heartland. And we're just normal for a change? You're watching WNBC, the voice of normal people. Welcome back, everybody, to Normal Tonight. I'm your host, Absence J Negative Peace. Now, today on the show, we need to talk about Better Hope Change the Second. Now, some of you may know, he's come under a lot of fire recently for what some are calling a compromise in his values. And while I can sympathize with that perspective, I think we need to recognize that compromise is one of Better Hope Change the Second's values, one of his most important values. And one of the most important groups that he needs to compromise with is the interests of the business community, because whether we like it or not, nothing gets done without the business community's involvement. I think that Better Hope Change the Second is actually leading us by example the reasonableness of these compromises he's making today are making the other party look so bad that he looks better by comparison. And did he pull it off perfectly? No, I don't think anyone is arguing that it was perfect. But is what he's doing bringing America back together again? I think so. I think so. Is this the route to normalcy? Well, that's the big question for swing voters in 2024. 
Today's guest, the firebrand local politician from one of those swing states, has been quite vocal on Twitter criticizing Better Hope Change II. Thanks for having me. Now, we all wish that Better Hope Change could fulfill every campaign promise that he made. But don't you think it's reasonable to assume that everything he's saying now is really just to pacify the Republicans and that he's secretly still working for everything he said he believed before behind the scenes? And we really just need to put our trust in him, don't you think? I think the perspective that any sort of politician who says something that we disagree with is only saying that to appease other people and they secretly believe what we think, that is like an open door for politicians to do whatever they want. We need to hold politicians accountable to what they say, and we also have to make them say the right things. And that means standing together and putting pressure on them. This new election sort of honeymoon period, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, why should you let people off the hook at the beginning of their term, even if you're worried about them not getting reelected? I mean, this is the best time to criticize them. It's the furthest from an election. So it is the perfect time for me to point out that he's breaking his campaign promises, that he's upsetting voters that are going to leave the party, and the path to achieving the bold promises that he all but committed to during the campaign. And I will disagree with you on one point. I do not hope that he keeps all of his campaign promises. There's a number of campaign promises, which I hope he breaks, but I unfortunately have confidence that he's going to keep. Like, for example, harsher means testing, a larger military, more militarized police. These are promises I hope he doesn't keep. But there are promises, illusions at the very least, if not promises, to things like large-scale social spending, tackling the climate crisis, making housing affordable, addressing costs of living in people's lives, which he's all but abandoned weeks into his presidency. So how could I remain silent during that? Look, I completely understand the need to keep the pressure up. Don't get me started on that. But we need a balance here. Sure, politicians need pressure on them. But, you know, sometimes people need a little bit of support, too. You know? If Better Hope Change the Second is requiring my personal encouragement in order to do what is right, then that is a failure of Better Hope Change the Second and not myself. I would much rather be here talking about how he kept the promises that matter to people, how he's pushing for a bold platform, but the reality is that he's not. So I don't understand what you mean to say when you say that you support putting pressure on politicians, if not making reasonable, realistic, and accurate criticisms about their behavior. If that's inappropriate to you, then clearly no pressure would be appropriate to you. He's enacting the exact same policies pushed by the business class of this society. You know, this healthcare savings account was first proposed in the 1980s as a right-wing industry proposal as a way of dealing with the issue of healthcare. It is now being reproposed with its teeth removed as some sort of progressive beacon. And it's not unreasonable to just point that out very plainly so people have the information that they require. We can talk about which party was proposing what, what, 30, 40 years ago now? To have a rich discussion, it's useful to have historical context. Please, I let you speak. I just need you to let me speak as well. I think that people today, millions of people in our country are suffering from a lack of funding for their healthcare spending accounts. And do I wish it was more than 10%? Of course. Do I wish it was a 100% match? Of course. But if we want to put pressure, why not put pressure in productive places? Put pressure on, hey, bump this up to 20, maybe even 25 if we want to be a bit daring. This is what I'm talking about with being reasonable and sticking to what normal people want. Because right. when, excuse me, sorry, before you start, when we poll normal people and we ask them, do you want the government 
to fund everyone's savings account to 100% if they're going to take that money off of your paycheck? And overwhelmingly, when asked the question in that way, people say no. They want to keep their paycheck. That's the real world. There are very powerful people within the insurance industry trying to convince us that the missing piece of our heart that will make our nation whole is a healthcare savings account where people have the responsibility to put aside a small piece of their income to pay the highest medical bills in the world. That we've been languishing as a species for millennia without the healthcare savings accounts while people all around the world are receiving free at point of service medical care and have been for decades and generations. We're the only country in the world where people will go bankrupt because of basic medical procedures. It is outrageous that you would carry any water for someone who continues that status quo. And it seems like it's not a coincidence to me that your advertisers are often pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies. The financing of this network is underpinned by the very industries that benefit from this arrangement, which degrades people and removes their ability to have a dignified life. So I'd like to return the question to you is how do you as a host, how do you ensure that you're not just looking at a person who needs healthcare in the face and telling them you're not important enough? Because I think that's what a lot of normal people, quote unquote, hear who are suffering. I would love to answer that question, but that scornful, self-contradictory, spurious rant took up the rest of the time for this episode. And I think it's clear to the people listening that no matter how hard well-meaning politicians of this world try, firebrand grifters just see an opportunity to bolster their own self-image, throwing the public under the bus. That's the problem right there. These are the people who are dragging us down and preventing us. Sorry, can we cut? I just wanted to say that it is all well and good to point out how Better Hope Change the Second's proposals will not solve all the world's problems in a single night. It would be unreasonable for us to think that they would. The lesson to take from that, from this, from even the best of what our guest today said, is that Better Hope Change the Second is trying. And yes, he still has a whole lot more work to do, but that just means he's going to need a whole lot more of our support to do it. And that's my final thought. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for the rest of our sponsor messages because really they're the ones making the show happen. Grandson, let me help you with your homework. Oh, P.U., Grandpa. Stinky. Don't let your moderate to severe halitosis hold you back with Breathazen Daily. Breathazen Daily? Is that just another breath mint? Conventional breath mints just cover up the smell of halitosis, like hanging an air freshener in a stinky car. Breathazen Daily goes to the source and actually chemically affects every cell in the body to ensure that halitosis is simply not possible. Its deep action formula provides five times the bad breath protection of your leading breath mint. Wow, time with my grandson. Wow, Grandpa, it smells great over here. You can lean in even closer. Breath is in daily. Make life normal again. Side effects include nausea, confusion, dry eye, headaches, body odor, and vomiting. In some rare cases, breath in daily can cause night diarrhea. If you are experiencing side effects of breath is in daily, it may be dangerous to stop without speaking to your doctor. Wow, I finally have my life back. And seniors like you can talk to their doctor about an interest-free medicine loan. It seems kind of overwhelming, and these are very powerful industries that we're dealing with. 
like the energy industry fighting for policies that are going to guarantee that it's more and more increasingly impossible to set the earth on the right course. In the case of the energy industry, one option that they could adopt would be to become the source of all the renewable energy and just move out of carbon. They've got the capital, but the short-term profits are where they are and they want them. And they just keep leveraging not just the U.S. government, but all of the advanced governments. It's this really scary thing. How do we avoid a terminal depression understanding this, right? We began asking ourselves, how do we ever win? How does a good policy ever get implemented? And since you can look through the history and find good policies, that's where the other side of this whole dialectic exists, which is that there are forces that are capable of taking on the corporations. These are mass movements, almost without fail, they're mass movements. And they are successful when and if they are able to put pressure on the corporations themselves. When they can get the corporations themselves into a situation in which the lesser of the evil is to give away some concessions, back off of their biggest desires in order to preserve what might happen if these mass movements cause the kind of disruption that they are capable of causing and therefore affecting their financial interests, the economy as a whole, or their particular sector, that's when they start saying, oh, maybe we'll give this in order to avoid that. That's where the whole second part of the book, the title is How the 1% Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It. Well, it turns out that the 99% can do something about it, but it's hard, it's situational, and you got to be really smart in doing it. You got to target the right guys. And so that's how we got to the second half of this logic. One way to do it is to look back on prior democratic administrations over the last hundred years, the extent to which social movements of progressive people have either been able to achieve major changes or not been able to. So if we go back to FDR in the 1930s or JFK in the 1960s and Johnson after that, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. So in 1932, FDR was elected on a pretty conservative platform. This was in the midst of the Great Depression, and he was running on a platform of a balanced budget, essentially. He wasn't talking about big spending to get the country out of the Depression. He wasn't talking about guaranteeing the right of unionization for workers. That came later, and it came as a result of a massive upsurge of worker militancy in the factories, in the workplaces across the country. So in the book, we talk about the example of the auto industry and the way that worker strikes in the auto industry were central to both the passage of the Wagner Act in 1935, which legalized private sector unions, but also maybe even more importantly to the implementation of that act. Because after the act was passed in 1935 in the Congress, the employers just ignored it. Even after the Supreme Court confirmed it, upheld it as constitutional, they still ignored it. And it took a massive wave of strikes, starting in the auto industry, but also elsewhere around the country, to force the employers, starting with General Motors in 1937, to actually go to the federal government and say, we want you to intervene and help conduct our union elections in these workplaces. And this was a total sea change from the prior stance of the big auto companies because of the disruption that was being caused by worker strikes on the shop floor. So by the late 1930s, early 1940s, even Henry Ford, who was the most notorious anti-union boss in the auto industry, maybe in US industry more generally, 
came around to this position and said, okay, let's let the unions come in here and unionize the workforce so we can end this disruption and restore our stable profits. So if we look at the 1930s as a case study for today, the way that workers and other progressive people made gains and achieved major reforms was not primarily by electing FDR. It wasn't primarily by calling their legislators or protesting outside the White House. It was by taking direct action right where they were, in their workplaces. So they didn't call up FDR. They didn't call up their congressperson. They just threw a wrench in the gears right next to them. And they did that on a massive level, on a collective level. And in the 1960s under Kennedy and Johnson, it's something similar. There's this narrative about the 1960s that Black people in the South were able to obtain civil rights because they successfully appealed to liberal Northern whites, including the leaders of the Northern branch of the Democratic Party, who then intervened on their behalf. And that's not really how it happened. In the book, we go into this in a lot of detail. But if we look at the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, for instance, it succeeded not by pressuring politicians, but by inflicting massive disruption on the downtown retailers in the city of Birmingham. It cost them millions of dollars through boycotts, through sit-ins, through marches through the downtown. So what we saw in Birmingham in the spring of 63 was that the business elite in the city were the first to come around and argue that it's time to make some concessions. It's time to desegregate. It's time to end this cycle of terrorism that constituted Jim Crow. And it was that section of the elite, the business people, the head of the Chamber of Commerce was the leading force here, who then went to the police and the city council people and the other branches of the government and said, it's time to give in to the movement's demands in the interest of restoring stability. So that was the most crucial victory of the entire civil rights movement in the South. And after that movement triumphed and the business leaders and the city elite agreed to desegregation, it was a month later that JFK finally announced that he would introduce a civil rights bill. So he had been basically sitting on his hands for over two years. This was June of 63. And he agrees to introduce a civil rights bill in Congress. And then eventually that was passed in 64 and signed by Johnson. So if we look at these iconic examples from the 30s and the 60s, there's a lot of lessons for today about how to most effectively pressure a democratic administration from the left. And I think the key takeaway here is that in order to push a democratic president to the left, the most effective way to do that is not necessarily to focus all of our energy and attention on that democratic president or other politicians. It's to build movements that can effectively challenge and disrupt the institutional centers of power, corporations foremost among them, but also state institutions like the military and the border patrol and ICE, this whole complex of institutions that designs policy and implements policy. So we need to build the movements that can directly target those power centers. And that is the most effective way to influence what politicians are doing. I just want to add one little comment to the Birmingham story, because a lot of people think when they hear about this, that the business people were the ones that intervened, they say, oh yeah, those business people, they were the representatives of Northern capital like Woolworths, and they were always liberal. And then finally this triggered them to go use their influence. They weren't always liberal. The point guy in Birmingham had also been the head of the White Citizens Council, which of course was the group that was engineering all the resistance to integration from the get-go. So no, he was not an ideologue 
who really thought maybe Jim Crow was not such a good idea. He was one of the chief backbones of Jim Crow who just gave in when he had to choose between his profits and his beliefs. And I think that that is a really important factor. For example, not in the book, but in a subsequent article, we talk about the current situation with the pipelines and the fact that the protests against the pipelines have become so effective in creating delays, at least, if not stopping them, that the investors, investment capital is starting to say, this is not a very profitable thing, especially if we think these disruptions are going to continue forever. And so now a lot of these pipelines are getting boycotted by the finance capitalists who don't want to sink good money after bad into bad investments. Those bad investments have been created by the protests themselves. That's what makes them a bad investment. And I think it's very significant that when Biden came in, he immediately canceled one pipeline, which is really suffering from the lack of investment, and not another pipeline, which looks like it might be able to be completed and get the financing. Well, it seems to me that there's a real lesson to be learned there, which is that the protests have to amplify the protests against the existing pipelines to make them as unprofitable as the ones that have been canceled. And then Biden will drag his ass along behind them. Yeah. And just to add one side note about the Keystone XL pipeline, Biden has gotten a lot of credit for canceling that, but he didn't really cancel it himself. He kind of just put the icing on the cake or consolidated a change that had really already materialized precisely as a result of the forces that Michael was talking about. As a result of the direct action protest movement against the Keystone XL pipeline going back over a decade, and as a result of the lawsuits, which have been another key piece of the climate movement, of the anti-pipeline movement, lawsuits taking the companies to court on the basis of existing environmental legislation, some of which is pretty good, pretty robust, at least on paper. And in July of 2020, so before Biden was even in office, the U.S. Supreme Court actually upheld a ruling by a lower court judge that had stopped construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. So that, I think, speaks to the importance of direct anti-corporate activism targeting these institutions directly. Biden came into office and he basically just made it more definitive. But even well prior to Biden's arrival on the scene, the Keystone XL pipeline was already in big trouble due to this sustained activism over the past decade and due to the financial risk that the activists had succeeded in creating around this project, such that judges were beginning to rule against it and investors were beginning to pull out of the project. So this sort of gives a picture of when we want to really put pressure for a political end, we need to somehow give the business class and the political class an offer they can't refuse, where the alternative is worse. One of the things that we talk about on the show all the time is the shortening of the work week. You know, we've done it before, May Day's around the corner. We know that it's possible to fight and win for shorter work days, less work days. We've jokingly called it the abolition of Mondays, <laughs> making it a weekend day is the idea. So in order for something that bold to, just as an example, to be seriously considered by the political class and the business class, there would have to be some sort of steady, yeah. consistent, large-scale financial cost yeah. for it not being implemented. A mass movement that's between boycotting, sabotage. And strikes. And strikes. Right. Anything that impacts their bottom line, and it needs to be like, well, if you want to relieve this pressure that's coming from everyone, so you need a large group of people working on this in a very dedicated and rigorous way, but you can create a dichotomy where to keep things going as they're going, 
is bleeding them dry. And the only way out is to take the other door, which might seem like a far left idea without all the context of all the economic devastation. We have this power if we can stand together in workplaces or as consumers or in a mass movement to inflict enough economic pain on them to make sure that economically they're not achieving those maximum profits that they're promised under Clinton era laws, (laughs) that they've got an offer they can't refuse. They're okay. Fine, we're going to prevent us all from dying in a climate apocalypse. You win, that sort of thing. (laughs) It takes some real creativity to find the pressure point and then activate enough of a protest to make that pressure point work. One of the ideas that I'm playing around with, because I've been looking at a lot of the evidence about sanctuary cities, it turns out that there's an entry point there because what sanctuary cities do There's two kinds of things that happen in sanctuaries. One is that the city doesn't use its local police force to find, capture, incarcerate, and deliver to ICE various people. And then on the other side, the sanctuary havens where people can go, and presumably ICE has a lot of trouble getting in there for one reason or another because there's some legal protections, there's also some people, and it's a big process. Well, it turns out that is really a big problem for ICE. They don't have enough resources to go around collecting thousands of people if this kind of intervention takes place, and they have to do it all themselves without the help of the police If the police won't incarcerate somebody locally and hold them until ICE can get there, that's an expensive proposition they don't have the budget for. You would really hurt ICE if this became multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and people were really very systematic about that. This whole ICE raid thing could really be decreased quite a bit just because they wouldn't have the resources to do it. And it might be interesting to see what ICE would be willing to give up. And then on the other side, you have to stop them from getting more budget. So that's another process because right now they're demanding more budget. It's very important for that not to happen. Unfortunately, I don't see the same kind of leverage being applied at the border at the moment, but I think the movement will find it. I think the movement will find it if they keep trying. And of course, it's the immigrants themselves that are really going to have to figure out what works and then put real pressure on the Border Patrol and ICE directly and on the private incarcerators. There's been some very good protests in the private incarceration where people have hunger strikes and other things that have really called out the fact that these people are just making obscene profits. Those profits get dissipated by these protests. And there've been a couple of successful efforts to shut them down because they just couldn't make them profitable because the people inside didn't allow them to. So there is some real promise there. And that would, I think, if that was successfully implemented, making enforcement of this ridiculous system that Biden is trying to perfect rather than eliminate, he doesn't have to incarcerate any of these kids. They can just deliver them to their destination with a little certificate saying, show up for your hearing. They don't need that incarceration, 72 things, build new facilities. They don't need to do that. And the only way that they're going to be stopped from doing it is if that just becomes completely unmanageable. And that's what I think the kids have to do and their supporters and their families and us. We have to make them unmanageable somewhere or another. The sanctuary city example gives an interesting possibility where you can imagine a cascading process where we put pressure on a business community that has influence over a city, which then creates a foothold, which allows the city to put pressure at a higher level. 
And then you can have a cascading multifacet process through that power analysis, creating these financial blockages within the system itself through different lobbying or different activism, different economic pressures in different places. Trying to imagine the whole picture here. You can think of a path that could accelerate some of the positive political developments we've seen over the last however many years and start seeing some of the more awful uh, political developments reversed through a process like this. That's really fascinating to think. I think that essentially the national movement for a $15 minimum wage is a symptom of exactly the kind of process you're talking about. We might locate the $15 minimum wage in the state of Washington in Seattle. That was the first city, I think, where there was really a big movement for it. Right, with Kishama Sawant yeah. and Socialist Alternative right. banging the drum for that a lot. Right, and then they passed it in San Francisco, and it kind of has leavened upward. And then you get the corporations that have been targeted. If they feel like it might be better to have a national minimum wage than for them to be stuck with the minimum wage and nobody else. McDonald's has actually articulated that in some of its statements. Well, if we're going to have to give it, then everybody should have to give it. I mean, you can see their logic. It makes all sorts of sense. And this is the same thing that happened in the early 20th century with regulating the meat industry. The big meat packers were forced to clean up their shops in various ways at local levels. And then they favored the national law because they didn't want to be outcompeted by the guys that weren't covered by it. So that strategy you're talking about is really viable. It's just plain viable if you can generate the protest at the local level that's capable of making the move. You've got to get that critical mass. And that does two things. One of them is it starts this upward trend, but it also shows to other localities that they can do it. The real place where this should start is in the meatpacking industry. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Business Financial Hardship Caused by Divestment, Boycotts, and Sabotage. Sir, 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 the protesters are causing our business financial hardship. They're using divestments, boycotts, and sabotage. What do we do? God damn it, call the calculator, boys. We need to figure out whether or not their campaign is more expensive or listening to their demands would be more expensive. We can do whichever thing is more profitable. Our system is organized according to profit. Right away, sir. I'll get them to crunch those numbers. And if we do have to change, make a press release about what a hero I am and and make sure those activists don't know they're having an impact. Of course, sir. You've been planning to make these changes, whichever ones we end up making or not, for a long time. It's a big part of your strategy. Impacts on the bottom line of businesses through divestment, boycotts, and sabotage. Today's proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. Before we wrap up, if you've got any last thoughts or anything last that you want to share with the audience on how these coming decades are going to look and what we can do to see this through and anything else that comes to mind. That's a big question. The thing that is foremost in my mind these days is the climate emergency and how we are going to confront it. We've seen some fairly positive initial gestures from Biden, but I think it's clear that they don't go nearly far enough. So that is probably the most pressing problem that we all need to confront. And I think that the book raises a lot of questions and makes some arguments about how we can best confront that crisis without providing definitive answers for how we do so. My hope for the book is that people will read it and think about the questions in a new way and think about strategy in a new way, but then use the book as a jumping off point. 
because we don't necessarily provide definitive answers, but we provide a set of questions and historically based arguments for organizers and activists of today to think about how they can most effectively exercise political power. So it would be gratifying to me if people use the book not as a blueprint, but as a set of questions for applying to their own movements and organizations. I want to riff off this idea that the way that we achieve sufficient levels of resistance to actually impact policy on the environment and anything else is building from the bottom up. And to point out that very frequently, maybe almost inevitably, the bottom that starts organizing are people of color, are other kinds of excluded minorities, and that their struggles are the struggles that have to be valorized. In the case of the environment, we know that the big environmental victims are people at the bottom, oppressed minorities especially. And I think the pipeline example is a good one because there the leadership was taken by indigenous communities. And the danger was, and in many places it materialized, the danger was that white people more prosperous people whose stake is in this would not support it because they would see it as just another minority issue. And that endemic racism that pervades all of us, not maybe in the white supremacist way, but in the more subtle, okay, that's their issue way, is going to be the biggest barrier to building a movement from the bottom up that gets large enough to do everything that it needs to do. And that we have to constantly, 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 constantly point this out and call it out when it appears, when people say, that's not my fight. That's exactly the moment when we have to say, no, it is yours. Such an important point. Nolignati have said on this issue that white supremacy is the preeminent working class issue because it is exactly the tool that is used to divide us. It is exactly the tool that is used to divide the white working class and the working class that includes everyone. Yeah. I find this idea very compelling, too, that racism and white supremacy, it's not a niche issue. It's not an issue for racialized people who are brutalized by the system of white supremacy to deal with. It's something that everyone in the working class needs to consider a preeminent concern. I've known a lot of people who were so, suspicious about I guess, non-universal politics, non-universal leftism, this idea that if you focus on racism, you're going to alienate people. And I think we've seen over the last however many years that those people were wrong and that the focus on racism, the focus on sexism, as it's come up, has been massively powerful in achieving real change in a short period of time and changing the way that people think about their day-to-day -day lives. You know, that insight that racism has been the main thing stopping the working class from getting what it needs, that insight has been around for a long, long, long time. But unfortunately, the people who were saying that were mostly Black, mostly minorities. And then the white working class would say, yeah, that's them saying that, of course. They want us to help them, you know. There's been great research on, as far as wages go, and there's this seminal book by Michael Reich back in the 70s, in which he showed that the lower wages in the South for white people were a result of the racism. You know, white people victims of their own racism because they would have strikes to stop black people from being hired in their shops. That's what they would strike about, you know. And then, of course, when they went and struck about wages, the black guys would come in and take the jobs. I mean, it's, it's just so simple. It's ridiculous. And God knows it's still going on. 
Well, this has been a really, really awesome discussion. A lot of food for thought here. And I highly, highly recommend the book, Levers of Power, to the audience. It's published by Verso. So much interesting insights and the way all these systems interact with each other. Thank you both for writing this because I think it actually is really going to help people to conceive of the metastructure of politics in a new and different way that helps us to create those cascading wins where we're not metaphorically the person who thinks that the, the stock market is a wild animal when it comes to politics. We can actually look at the mechanisms of politics in detail and then start making measured interventions to inflict that right economic pressure to achieve the ends that we want in the coming decades, where it's going to be so essential that we're able to stand together and make the right strategic decisions to challenge the powerful and put our hands on the levers of power, not to remain naive to even where they are and just pontificate about what should be, but to also put our hands where the levers of power are and turn them ourselves as the 99%. Thanks again for joining us today. Great. Thanks. Thanks Thank you for mediating this and, and for your contributions. This has been great for me. I loved it. This episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by speculating endlessly about the moral character of individual politicians. I just think he's a bad person at heart. I think he's secretly, at his heart, a bad person. No, he's ignorant, but he means well. He's foolish. No, 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 no. he's evil. Like, he's a demon. He's, like, malevolent. He's just naive. He's not evil. That's silly. Excuse me, fellas. Don't you think that the private hearts of politicians is irrelevant to any sort of strategic decisions we'd be making about doing our own organizing in our communities? Shouldn't we be focused on something a little more material, fellas? <laughs> what do you think we are, political organizers? We engage in politics as a lifestyle. Hating a new person every week, dunking on Twitter, writing hostile head cannons. We're not really trying to get an impact with what we're doing. All right, fellas. Well, whatever you say. Bye now. Where were we? Yeah, not evil. No, I think he is evil. Like, his secret moral character at his heart, definitely evil. I know what's in hearts. You don't know what's in hearts. I have hard eyes. I can see into the heart. I know. I just think I've got a little more clarity on the secret content of his private heart here, and I think you're not listening. Speculating endlessly about the moral character of individual politicians. Proud sponsor of the show. All right, everyone. Well, that brings us to the end of our humble little show here. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks for co-hosting with me, Aaron. No problem. Thank you to the ghosts. Sorry, guests. I almost thanked the ghosts. Oh, yeah. Which I do not want to thank, and yeah, I no, request they stop haunting me at once. And my understanding is that if you thank the ghosts, that makes them stay, so I'm a little bit worried about that one. Please. But I was mixing up guest and host there for right. whatever right. reason. All I want to say is to the ghosts, if you think you're just haunting him, you're also haunting everybody who has to hear about it all the time, so. Oh, I'm sorry I complained about the ghosts a little too much. Okay, I'm sorry. It's being haunted's no cakewalk. I'm not trying to bring everyone down. It's just that the ghosts, which I do not intend to thank, are haunting. And that's that. I mean, the ghosts are haunting. What else can you say? They're haunting to be around. Ghosts aren't real. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And when we got, we mentioned before, but we got the Patreon. If you can leave reviews on like iTunes or any other place where reviews can be left, recommend us on Twitter and Reddit and stuff. We see people doing this around, and the degree that we ever see it, it is so encouraging and helps us grow the show. So, like, 
thank you to people who do that and thank you for considering doing it now, hopefully. So we will have some links in the description. There's been a couple articles that have come out during the time of Joe Biden and the coronavirus related to the subject matter, as well as a link to the website where you can check out their book. Without further ado, let's do you want to hit the big switch that is the end? It says the end on it. Oh, yeah, the switch that turns the tape, the tape that we're in right now. We can turn it off from the inside, ending this session. And I would like to turn that switch. Any last words? If you think of like a nested tape-based universe over many generations would start to develop, you know, internal tape switch-offs. So you could tell that's a really advanced. The tape bit is one we've done before. We're, we're reaching the end of it. It's the end of the tape, as they say. The end of one tape is just the beginning of another tape. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. Seriously wrong. You're wrong. You're 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 seriously wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong, President Better Hope Change II takes two meetings. All right. What decisions will I make in my role as leader today? It's, oh, the phone. Hello? Hi, Mr. Hope Change. It's Stacy from the Anti-Racism NGO. How's it going? Oh, good, good. I just wanted to call in hopes today that you'd put in some policies, some of our policies to prevent racism in society. And don't worry, they've already been watered down. We wanted to meet sort of our opponents halfway, and then we actually met them halfway a second time. So these are super realistic and watered down. We're hoping that maybe you would... Well, um, first of all, Stacy, I just wanted to say that I am completely committed to fighting racism. I've had some of my people look over the proposals you sent. Unfortunately, you know, what you see is watered down and what we see is watered down. It's two different. Th I don't sometimes I don't know what's going on over there in NGO world. All those radical, unrealistic demands you're making over there. You know, I'm with you in spirit, but I'm working for a serious long-term solution to racism. I can't implement these radical, quote-unquote, watered-down ideas. Okay, so I guess should we try to tame them down Bye-bye. Oh, glad that nightmare call is over. Set, uh, oh, the phone again. Hey, better. You old bastard, it's me, Whitey McWhite Supremacist from the American Business Lobby. How you doing? <laughs> oh, Whitey, you old card. What are you doing calling me on the business line? I haven't seen you since college. How have you been? Oh, I've been okay, uh, better, but this is the thing, this racism stuff, it's been affecting our bottom line. We got activists protest, you know, using financial means to attack our business margins here, so it's sort of rough. Ooh, yeah, that is rough. Racism, hurting your business margins. Ugh. Anything we can do to help? Well, uh, me and the other guys at the American Business Lobby were thinking maybe we implement a lot of the sort of exact anti-racist, watered-down policies that the NGOs are calling for. I think it's just the easiest way to cut this off at the pass and get profits back to normal. Say no more. We'll get it done. I know you wouldn't be making that decision if it wasn't the most realistic one to make. Your business was hurt by racism. We're here with the band-aids. We're going to kiss the boo-boo and make it all better. How does that sound? That sounds incredible. 
that's just what me and the other business class needs right now. So that is just, that's awesome. Uh, well, enjoy being president. I hope you get reelected whether or not you enact the needed change that people want. And I hope that your profits go up and up and up and up. Thank you. So, have a good one, you old bastard. Bye now. Bye. Ah, making change. It's radical to be real. It's radical to be realistic. It's radical to be realistic. Oh, hi, uh, Secretary, can you have the PR team put together a release about our new anti-racist measures I've been working on diligently for months, years even, that are a true reflection of my character? Thank you. Remember, we're already running for re-election. Tell the PR team that. That's part of the memo. And I have to win no matter the cost. Add that too. Bye.